punks, go on my pub! Hello, my name is Liam Bird, and you must have accidentally downloaded the Punks in Pubs podcast. Oh well, never mind you're here now. Welcome to episode 14. Hope you're all well in the world. Uh, what have I been up to? I was up north in in uh, York and Leeds, in fact, conducting a couple of interviews for the podcast. And I can exclusively reveal, if that's a thing, I'll be travelling back up north as Punks in Pubs will be at Rebellion Fest up in Blackpool in early August. If you don't know what Rebellion Fest is, it is the largest punk festival in the world. Still believe tickets are available, so go grab some. The lineup this year is a solid one with the Flatliners, Menzingers, Buzzcocks, Friends of the Pod, Idols, and Pill, just to name a few. So John Lydon might be on the podcast. Uh, I can't see that happening, but you never know. Anyway, that's all in the future. Let's talk about the now. Episode 14 is me in an alley in Brixton having a beer with Pop Punkers Army of Freshmen's Chris J. My interview took place on an oddly warm February day during their support run with Bowling for Soup. Army of Freshmen will probably be one of the most pop-sounding bands I will ever cover on the podcast, and pop is not a dirty word, nor is it a diss at Army of Freshmen saying that they are probably going to be one of the most popular bands I'll ever cover on this podcast, because for me, Chris J is probably one of the most punk guys i know his diy ethic is phenomenal he's lived most of his life by it if he wants to do something creative he just goes for it and i feel that should be applauded and for me that is a punk ethic so even if you're not a fan of army of freshmen and their music i really feel you're gonna dig what chris talks about um what can i tell you about chris though he is a charming man a very charming man and by god he loves to tell a story you will hear in this episode how chris loves to talk which isn't a bad thing when it comes to a podcast uh, so in this conversation you'll hear about a man who up sticks at the age of 17 and moved 3,000 miles away from home to follow his dream chris will take us on a journey from coffee shops to playing in front of huge crowds in japan uh, chris explains how the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 tied in with the music industry going to the shit really affected his band we give each other therapy by discussing the realizations that we can't have the career that we always wanted and also worked so hard for and also having to deal with that idea that you failed or the perception of failure Uh, i asked chris if he suffered from jealousy or anger at seeing other bands under the quote pop punk label making that break into the mainstream we also talk about his movie the bet a movie that he co-wrote with his friend aaron goldberg and it's also the last movie that Roddy Piper ever made. And if you are a WWE slash WWF fan, you're really going to enjoy Chris's story that he tells right at the end about Roddy. And it's definitely worth sticking around for. As always, your band plays out the show. And this week's band are called Media Horse from Scotland. I will also be giving a very important announcement after my chat with Chris. So stick around until the end. But before all that, there's this. This is episode 14 of Punks and Pubs with me and... Chris J. Enjoy. Where I burn it down 
don't understand I never really changed, now we're going up Alley uh, in Brixton. Uh, you can hear the sounds of Brixton behind us. You might occasionally hear the tube behind us. Um, but in, sat in front of me, I am with a man who is an actor, a producer, a screenwriter, a, a writer of pop and I was about to say punk pop, uh, pop punk, but mm. I want to get into that later on. But, but you're also an amateur boxing champion yeah. of America. <laughs> Kind of. That's a stretch, but thank you for all the kind words. Yeah. Right, right now, I just feel like you and I are in the, the background of an 80s Rastafarian video. You know, <laughs> like, pass the duchi to the left-hand side. There's so much um, color and vibrancy where you and I are hanging out. It's actually almost overwhelming. Oh, really? You, you, yeah, well, there's a lot going on. It's trains going by, and people are selling stuff in the distance, and people are drinking. I mean, this is... This is uh, this is life. You know, I was walking around <laughs> lost trying to find you, and I was thinking, like, man, I feel like I'm in, like, some, uh, you know, again, like a stereotypical 80s London, like, Clash video yeah. or, you know, just, like, there's so much, you know. Mm. And it's weird having been on a bus and, and just, it, this is the first time I've seen sun. So I'm kind of <laughs> tripping out. I've been over here for a week, and we've been up north primarily. It's been so cold, and just the weather has been so bitter and uncomfortable. Yeah. All of a sudden, like, I woke up today, and wait a minute, like, I don't have to put on winter jackets and gloves and hats, and, oh, my God, is that the sun right now? And I'm, I'm having a drink outside on the street, and I'm, this is just, this is heaven, man. I'm digging it. Well, I'm, well, Chris J, by the way, is the voice that you, I didn't introduce you, but that's the voice that you can hear. But I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating you because I feel like you've brought this from California. Oh, thank you. you. Thank this, you very much, sun. yeah. I wish I would have brought it a week ago. I have been so <laughs> bitterly, violently cold. The venue the other night in Sheffield, you wouldn't believe it. It was warmer outside in the snow than it was in the freaking venue man i mean just it's it's remarkable how freaking cold it gets here and it gets cold like that in america but i'm spoiled i'm originally from jersey i'm in cali now and i'm just my body is just warm to a point where i don't understand like the concept of being inside means you're not as cold as you were outside yeah. and you will find places over here that somehow defy that logic <laughs> you know what i mean and like wow everyone's in beanies and hoodies and huddled around each other in a building that in theory should have heat but yeah. someone has decided not to turn it on i mean just it's a lot of bizarre stuff over here you, you know? gotta save money you know it is uh, saving money right it's uh hard times at the moment so we have to save all the money we can gather. For that the means- venue in question, it was not hard times. You know what I mean? It was a sold-out show, and they were taking a huge percentage of the merchandise. So it was just like, really? You're taking everything from us, and you won't even give us a little bit of heat? You know? Oh, brutal. I, I know I kind of joked on it a second ago, but let's talk about the boxing a little bit. You want to talk boxing? Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. let's talk boxing. Because I read that. I know I said it kind of jokingly, yeah. but, you actually, is, but you did win. Uh, you, like you won a tournament. Yeah, and yeah I mean, um, over here, I think what I do, they call white-collar boxing. I okay, think that's yeah. the, the title of it in the United Kingdom. Uh, in the United States, they call it master's boxing. And I'm very realistic about it, what it is. It's about dudes that have midlife crises that instead of getting a Ferrari or dumping their wife, decide that they want to get in, uh, you know, they want to fight. Um, I was a huge boxing fan when I was a little kid. Um, wasn't able to really pursue it because my parents were pacifists 
office and uh, you know yeah, yeah. and I didn't live in an area that really had boxing and boxing's a, a, a poor man's sport it's you know it's it's for you know people that are really trying to fight their way out of a, a certain situation I didn't have that I was a middle class kid very happy um, but I love boxing fell out um, got into music changed my whole life that's what I did for years and years and I was going through a fat Elvis stage the band was slowing down the economy went to shit you know <laughs> and um, long story short a friend of mine was a fighter and he led to me being friends with a gym and hanging out and a guy said listen I know you want to lose some weight why don't you come and train and it was like what I've been waiting for since I was 10 years old you know what I mean I just yeah. wanted somebody to ask me I went head first into it and started training and I lost a bunch of weight and then I really became obsessed with it and then that led to wanting to spar I just want to see what it's like to get hit like what's it like to get hit so what you was know? it like the first time you got popped in the face yeah. what was that like you know it's like it's a shock to the system but oddly enough you kind of adapted to it and it's not as bad as you think mm. um, it really isn't you know I mean you're just like oh was this going to hurt you know it's more just where you're standing where you're putting your hands all that kind of stuff and you, I just learned more and then after sparring for a while I was like I want to I want to compete I want to say I want to tell that 10 year old version of me that kid you had one amateur fight you <laughs> did it you had a fight I ended up doing it it was the most intense six minutes of my life towards the end I had noodle legs and I was falling around and flailing like a cartoon you know felt like I was literally going to die yeah. but I got through it lost the fight and then after a couple months the bug came back and it was like I want to win one what's it like to win one so I entered a tournament in Kansas for this white collar masters boxing and again I'm being very realistic of what it is any pro on earth would beat the crap out of me <laughs> you know what I mean but I went there and I won one and then that led to another one which led to the championship match and I actually won my division novice 160 pound masters boxing champion which won't even get you a cup of coffee if you walk into a bar and tell somebody <laughs> but for that 10 year old kid that had that dream i really felt like that was for him like hey man it's never too late yeah. you know it's like it wasn't the level you wanted no but it was still i did something that i wanted to do ever since i was a little kid and now i've gotten into the sport to the point where i'm training fighters um i've cornered a couple professionals okay. i'm managing a fighter so it's really become a big part of my life man i mean music movies boxing that's sort of me and that's that's what i do yeah you know i found three things that make absolutely no money and uh, I, it's it's remarkable. You can imagine how parent, proud my parents are. Well, I, yeah. Every time I find a passion, the industry goes to shit. Boxing's not as popular as it was. MMA's huge, right? Yeah. You know, went and did an indie movie. Well, indie movies are getting hit by the whole downloading thing. They're just you know getting destroyed. And I spent all this time doing music. And right when I finally thought I was going to be able to make a living at it, the whole music industry collapsed. <laughs> so I mean. I'm like the kiss of death. Like, if I come into your profession, look out. It's going to fold, you know? <laughs> so I'm guessing, you, like, because I was about to say a porn joke, because the porn industry is now shockingly gone shit. Uh, I don't maybe know it's if, time. Maybe have, it's time. Have you, like, yeah. peddled in that at all? <laughs> no, <laughs> like, I have not. I have not, you know? It would be very, very short films. It yeah. would be, like, you know, <laughs> you know, millisecond films. But, no. But it's true, man. I, I really have had a bad run. But on the flip side... I've been very blessed to have so many experiences. I mean, I, I tell people, like, I'm so rich in experience. I'm just poor in my bank account. Yeah. But I'm okay with that trade, man. That was a decision that I made a long time ago that said, I'm just going to pursue the things I really like, and hopefully one day it'll lead to, you know, yeah. me making a living doing them. Quite frankly, it hasn't happened. You know what I mean? I'm in my late 30s, and I've never made any money doing any of the things I love, and I have to have one or two side jobs back home to just survive and pay yeah. the bills. Um, but 
ultimately, I still get to do a lot of stuff I love. And even being here, I mean, I never thought we'd be able to be back and play a place like Brixton Academy. But, you know, the phone rang and the idea was to bring this Get Happy Tour back that we did 10 years ago with Bowling for Soup. And the answer was yes. And then all of a sudden, you know, a year later, here we are playing sold out shows all across the UK when most people probably wrote us off. I mean, most people thought, hey, that band's either done or on hiatus or they're never doing anything again and we're literally last night we played an arena in wales so i kind of feel like we're like the terminator like we're just hard to kill you know just when you think like oh they disappeared um suddenly something like this happens and then we're back at the top of it and you know what's going to happen in 48 hours i'm going to be back home teaching fitness boxing to a bunch of moms monday morning (laughs) so i mean that's just my life man you know it's funny we played um we played a big festival in Japan once years ago, and you knew every band on the festival except for us. It was one of the best weekends of my life. It was magic. We were at the airport, and we were talking. We were sitting around, and you, there were rock stars everywhere at the time. You know, I remember guys from Radiohead and Sum 41 were all like in the lobby, and, hey, where are you guys going next? And one good Charlotte was off to Europe, and Radiohead was off to do an MTV thing. Where are you guys going? Uh, I got to work a 9 a.m. shift at the record store Monday morning. And they all laughed. And it was true. You know, it wasn't me. It was another guy in the band. But it was true. And there he was. There was Kai, our bass player, selling Radiohead CDs while he was just playing with Radiohead in Japan. We've had a very bizarre career that way, you know. But it's a career that we've had, and I can't complain. It's better to have some experience than none at all. I know bands that would kill to have done what we've done, you know. I mean, you've kind of raced ahead with kind of the questions that I wanted to ask you. So we're going to come back to some I talk a lot, man. I'm all over the place. You're perfect yeah. for a podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> I just like to state for people who are obviously aren't here, uh, I have wankedly tried to do the questions on my iPad okay. and it is not going to work. Okay. It's not working. Yeah, so we're, we're flowing anyway. Exactly. We're fine. You just go with it. You're a professional. <laughs> well, you say that. Um, so let's talk about, you kind of talked about boxing and how your family were kind of um, against violence and that kind of sport. Yeah. I mean, what kind of child were you? Were you quite a jockey kind of child? No, no. I, you know, um, my parents were uh, music teachers. Oh, um, cool. My mom taught piano at, in the house that we lived in, and my dad was the high school band teacher, and then he became the high school string teacher. So um, they opened up a music store, and I lived in a music store. Nice. So basically, I um, had the benefit of being a very social child because obviously my parents were teachers. So there was people constantly coming to the house, um, and then they opened up a music store. So my living room was essentially people coming in and buying strings and picks and straps and books. And um, so uh, I was surrounded by music. Um, but, you know, I really – I got – you know, I was always around it, always liked it. I went through an Elvis stage when I was a little kid, but I just definitely fell in the grunge generation. Yeah. That's what grabbed me and made me really want to play guitar. My dad caught me a couple chords and it was hard on my hands and I was probably, you know, a spoiled little idiot and just didn't want to do it anymore. I can remember, you know, complaining that it's hard, but man, um, that when, when that whole teen spirit thing <laughs> happened, that was me. I mean, yeah. you got to keep in mind, I was probably in junior high school. It was all she wrote. I mean, I remember quitting the baseball team. You know what I mean? Starting a band, growing the hair out, wearing the flannel. I was very lucky to be part of that 90s, that amazing period in music as a teenager. So I was a teenager and just taking in 
what an incredible, you know, just a very special time in music. Yeah. And I got to be knee deep in it. You know, I got to see Nirvana play live. I oh, got wow. to, okay, you yeah. know, I got to all those bands, Pearl Jam, all that. I mean, I was there for all of that as a teenager when Lollapalooza was happening. So, I mean, I became a fan of all types of music. I became a pure, full-on music nut. But I was a kid that just strummed the guitar constantly, started a band in high school. We called, we were called Wyclep. We did a bunch of, you know, like metal covers yeah. and grunge covers. Had like five original songs. Um, and that's basically, that was my childhood. I, I, in high school, I was the music kid for sure, you know. Um, so were your family, were they, were they kind of encouraging, to, c- encouraging you to play like grunge? Abs- or were they like... Go classical, like cause no, it sound like they were so. And... They're just the most understanding, most wonderful people you'd ever met. They were all about following your own thing, you know. Yeah. To fall back to boxing, when I went through the boxing stage as a little kid, my dad would take me to fights in a city called Atlantic City, which is about forty-five minutes from where I live. That was a big boxing mecca at yeah. the time. My dad could give two shits about boxing, you know, long hair, you know. But he loved me, and he knew I had a passion for that, and he encouraged all my passions. But I think they were probably pretty excited when I really got into music, and I want looking back where they're like well we saw that coming you yeah, know because yeah. then all of a sudden by the time I was in high school I was you know music nut um, but I didn't go to college you know and they were in supportive of that I'm sure they would have liked me to go on to college but you know the band really was my university you know I mean uh, uh, but when I moved to California I didn't want to start a band I was going to do the solo thing I was a folky. I still am. I yep. love acoustic music and singer-songwriters. Like who? who? So who are the artists that you quite enjoy? Oh, like folk kind of yeah, wise? Um, in that world, um, I'm a huge Arlo Guthrie fan. Okay, uh, yeah. Woody Guthrie's son, the song Alice's Restaurant, huge influence on me, especially in high school. I got way into uh, Arlo Guthrie. Um, I love a lot of the 70s singer-songwriters like Randy Newman and John Prine and Warren Zevon. Tom Waits is my all-time hero. Yep. I mean, like, I love that kind of stuff. That's my world. So um, definitely a lot of that, you know, uh, happening. Um, so I was into that. I was going to go to California and I was going to do a um, do the solo acoustic thing. That was going to be like, I'm going to, you know, I knew the band wasn't, if the band in high school wanted to keep going, I would have kept going. But, you know, the guys in high school that played guitar back in the 90s were the stoners and the yeah, skaters. Yeah, yeah. So I knew they didn't want to take it very seriously. So I moved to California and I was going to be an acoustic folky. And as I enjoyed this uh, pale ale, as you call it, yeah, right. which is real pale, um, <laughs> Uh, I uh, started playing some writing songs, not good songs, but just writing songs. And then I got to a, um, uh, start playing some open mics, just getting my chops going. And, and it turns out an open mic in Ventura, the city that I had moved to. No friends, no family. I was there by myself. Well, I want to kind of touch on yep. that because that is kind of a brave, brave decision to literally cross country uh-huh. in, in a van that I believe your family gave you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my you, parents' minivan. And that yeah. was the van we did our first tour in. Yeah. So, have you still got that van? No, 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 no. She's long since gone. Oh. I sold it for $200. It got to the point where it could only go in reverse. And, <laughs> and two Mexican gentlemen showed up, you know, and, yeah. like, bought it for $200. And as they drove away, they drove away in reverse. And I wondered, where could they go? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they couldn't go far. But, you know, um, yeah, I love that van, though. That was that was my baby. So, But, yeah, I moved out yeah, there. Yeah, so that is a brave decision, especially at 17, deciding that yeah. you want to go across country to America's vast I don't think people who may not have been there can understand how huge America actually is Um, I mean a flight from New York to LA is about five hours that in Europe is from London probably to like Romania or Moscow or something like that like America is a vast country so traveling I mean how long did that journey take you first 3,000 miles and it takes about um, I was 
taking my time. Yeah. So it took probably about seven days, but I was stopping every night. You can rock it in three days. You can drive across America in 72 hours. Yeah. Um, if you're like, you know, popping pills and just going <laughs> yeah. straight, you know, but usually it takes people like five days. I'd say four or five days to drive if you're going. Yeah. Um, but again, we've done it before in the van in two days just because we're swapping drivers and stuff. Uh, but you know, I was seeing stuff and seeing the sites. I stopped at Graceland. Nice. You know what I mean? Yep. It just, just, you know, that was like my, that was kind of like my coming out party. That was like my summer after graduating high school, you know, where a lot of people yeah. travel and stuff. That's that's what I did. I went cross country and landed in Ventura, California. And um, this is before I tell people before uh, the internet, really. I mean, yeah. the internet existed, but it was in its infant stages. So, you know, you would get a guide for the city you wanted to move to. So when I decided I wanted to move to Ventura, um, I just called the city council and they would send you in the mail a booklet and you'd read about it, you know, to wow, decide okay, if you wanted yeah. to go there. I ordered a phone book, if you can remember those, and found an apartment. My mom helped me send my first rent check in. I mean, like, it was a very different time. I mean, you got to keep in mind, I was very young when I did that. I was 17 when I left home. Oh, man, I'm 39 now. Yeah. So that's a lifetime ago. I mean, that's like, I mean, tw- over 20 years ago, you know, but Don't things were point. different. Things were, ch- rent was cheaper. You could almost in some ways do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if a 17-year-old could move to California by themselves now, even with how expensive things were. I mean, mm-hmm. I think my first rent was $550. That same apartment now is probably like $1,400. I mean, and again, there's inflation and stuff, but just a bit of a different time. I mean, I almost look at it as the late 90s were sort of the end of just such a special era in music and, and even in culture. I mean, it was pre 9 11 in America, everything's measured by that. Everybody says, oh, is that before 9-11 or after? Yeah. It was just a different time. Though. I think things were just a slightly more innocent, and uh, it was special. I'm glad I did it when I did it. I don't think I would have had the balls to do it later. Some of it was just that young insanity. You know when you're just like, you know, you're 16, 17, 18, 19, you're invincible. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. My God, I can't imagine doing something like that now. You know what I mean? Like I would, you know, just be beside, you know, it just... I'm glad I did because I think the town would have sucked me in and I probably just would have stayed a small town kid yeah. and, and I think I would have had a lot of regret. The one thing that I was very blessed with, and this goes back to my parents to keep it in theme, is they definitely let me explore and see things and take me places and just kind of show me that it's a bigger world than just the town I lived in. Like, it's okay to be from this town, but there's stuff out there to do and see. The whole spread your peacock wings thing, you know? And, I mean, I took that to heart probably too much as I am now in my late 30s and have trouble paying the rent. Um, But, you know... Welcome to the club. uh, Yeah, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. but, I mean, they definitely instilled that in me, and I'm very thankful for that, you know?
So you went to uh, California, Ventura, California. You were playing the um, open mics and coffee shops. Because it's quite a big coffee shop scene, isn't it? Where that's people go and... was at the time. Okay. Not so much anymore, but in the late 90s, a vast Southern California coffee shop scene. So you could bounce from town to town and go to different open mics. Ventura had a lot of open mics. There was a very good music scene. It's one of the reasons I wanted to move there. I didn't want to be in Los Angeles. I knew as a 17-year-old kid I'd get chewed up and spit out. But I wanted to be close, yep. if that makes sense. And you know what? 20 years later, that's still my benefit. I don't have to live in the city and go nuts and deal with the traffic and all that bullshit. But anytime I need to be down there, I can drive an hour and be there. Because, yeah. I mean, after that time of grunge, then became the like the no effects, the offspring in, yes. in California. Was that something you were excited about? Like, Because it sounds like you, you went from grunge. Where did you go from grunge? Did you start going to the well, punk? Well, I started doing the singer-songwriter folky thing, you know, after yeah. the grunge. And what ended up happening was I met a couple guys at this open mic that I was playing at, and they all were musicians. And, you know, hey, let's play together. We're musicians. I was calling myself Chris. Sorry, I'm just going to go grab my it. jacket. You got it. Getting a little cold. It was, uh, I was I was playing under Chris J in the Army of Freshmen. It was yeah. a fake name. It was literally to be playing at a brew house like you and I are hanging out right now. I'm in the corner with an acoustic guitar, right? You walk by, I think there's a whole band playing. You walk in and there's no band. It was a gag. It was a gag. And then once I started jamming with these guys, it sort of became army of freshmen and then we started playing shows together as a band i wasn't by myself anymore so the decision was made dude it's time to throw my name out it's just too long let's just be army of freshmen so then basically after i went to california and wrote songs and hung out for a year i woke up a year later and suddenly i was in a band and i'm like this was not supposed to be what happened i didn't want to do the band thing but it was very natural and i became very close friends with these guys and i needed them you know like on my own you know, I'm not the greatest songwriter in the world. I'm not the greatest singer in the world, but I'm a good collaborator. So um, we started playing a whole lot, and our sound at first was all over the place. We were insane. We didn't know what we were wanting. You had me wanting to be Bob Dylan. You had another guy wanting to be a punk rocker. We were all over the place. Um, but after, we took like two years to really hone it. So we played all over Southern California. And after about two years, we realized, you know, we got to find our sound. We're just too all over the place. And that's where the sound that people now know Army of Freshmen for was created. That's where we decided to do two keyboards instead of one. That's when we, we had horns. We got rid of the two horns. Um, those guys, one guy went to keyboard. I dropped the guitar and started running around and doing my thing. And that's kind of how the Army of Freshmen that people now know, that's where the genesis of it was in 2000. So basically, we started in 98, 98, 99. We were sort of just all over the place playing local figuring out who we were then in 2000 we really kind of found our sound and just tried to progress upon it ever since for lack of a better word for the next you know 15 16 17 years and since then we've done uh, five full lengths two eps tons of demos and singles and uh for never being on a major label we're really proud of what we were able to accomplish because our initial goal was in all honesty to be on a major label yeah. you got to keep in mind it's the late 90s early 2000s that was the goal that every band that you cared about was on one of those it wasn't cool to be indie it was like in sports getting a major uh you know getting on a big uh, a contract with the uh, the premier league or something yeah, yeah, yeah. you know um and we came close multiple times we did all that stuff but it just never clicked for some reason we just never got that we got a couple cool indie deals that helped us but we never got the push and that's one of the things i'm proud about to be here and still be able to do this at no point in our career did a label ever come along and give us a ton of money for the big record or the real expensive video. We did things with blood, sweat, and tears. We had help along the way. There were definitely indies and different backers, but we never, ever were getting paid to be an army of freshmen. You know, it was something that we just did because we loved and we just kept trying to achieve more. 
um, and it got bigger and bigger. We kind of peaked size-wise. 06, 07, 08, that was our real big years. 05, 06, that's when things were really happening. We were coming over here a lot. We were opening up for all the right bands. But then when the economy crashed and a lot of those bands didn't tour as much, the opening acts like us were the ones that were really affected. We were the ones that were really, really affected. Um, to, To this day, we still have issues and debt from when all that fell apart. Um, but, I mean, it, it's part of the game. It's just kind of where we were. No one's famous. We're all strangers. Now I can't even talk to you. No one's famous. We're all contagious. And I'm scared that I'm losing you. I was working on my wish list. Kind of mine a Christmas. More or less a distance that's comprised of several enemies. Maybe you'll remember me. you spoke about kind of the DIY ethic of Army of Freshmen. Mm-hmm. Could you did it yourself? Now, 20 years later, with your been there, seen that kind of cap on, uh-huh. what would be your advice now? Because you booked all your tours yourself. Oh, I mean, what, what is the one bit of advice that you wish you were given now that you know? Well, everything's changed. It's a great question. Um, I, I tell people that back in the day, the advice that I would give people when kids would look up to us or bands wanted to emulate Army of Freshmen, Again, 06, 07, yeah. 08, you know, when, when life was good. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, back when we would do interviews in warm tour buses, not yeah. on the street, you know. Um, but uh, <laughs> with gunshots in the background. You know. It's the Brixton vibe. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. There it goes. <laughs> um, so I used to tell people, get in the van. If you get in the van and you start touring and you start booking your own shows, something will happen can't promise you what but i'm telling you kid you know you know uh imaginary kid something will come of this you know you know it happened for us we worked hard and and things did occur because of our work ethic and we were just out there playing and playing and making a new fan every single night and building the mailing list and growing and things happening and people hearing about it and then getting bigger shows but now liam now (laughs) i give people the exact opposite the industry has changed so dramatically that I tell kids, get out of the van. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't yeah, do yeah. it. Don't do it. I, I mean, because of the fact um, that it, we live in a society now where everything is so online driven yeah. that you are better off. And I don't like this fact, but it's truth. You're better off continuing to write your music, recording it yourself, your computers, whatever, posting it online working on your social media, trying to create online buzz, trying to get people to watch your videos, your posts, or your video journals. It's where people are. So if I'm telling a kid who wants to get his band bigger, his music bigger, his career bigger, if I told him to go in the van and just go play random clubs all over, clubs that don't even exist, you don't even have those rock clubs as much as you used to. It's big venues or nothing, right? So, um, I would be giving that kid a disservice because he can make more fans and get more attention and create more of a buzz in his goddamn room. You know what I mean? Posting videos, answering social media things, making cool viral videos. Then he would be able to get in a car, 
pay gas money to go to another city, play for 20 bucks, 30 bucks, waste all his time booking shows that nobody's going to, unless, of course, he falls in with some big manager and some big agent and he gets on big tours. Yeah. Building up like we did, I don't see it existing anymore. There's probably rare exceptions, but it is not the advice that I would give somebody. And that makes me sad because that's what not what I knew. I yeah. came from a different world. I had a foot in the old music industry. And I also got to see the fall of it. So I have a unique perspective as a guy. If you talk to a guy in Motley Crue, he doesn't know what the <laughs> yeah, hell happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was there when it was all good. And it's still good for him because he's one of the few guys. If you were big back in the day, you're still big. Big, big. But for the guys like me that were fighting to do it, we're lost in a bit of a limbo. So I can grab a kid saying, listen, as much as you want to go play, 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 you're going to, all the guys in your band are going to get burnout. You know what I mean? The shows aren't going to be that good. You should still occasionally play. You still need to have your chops. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but you should concentrate on occasionally just doing something really big and putting all your effort into it. Cause I just don't think touring works and God knows I don't think it works over here. Yeah. Like it used to UK bands. I always felt bad for them, you know, in terms, they just never knew what to do in terms of like, touring you know because over here it's like a blip you get hot for a second you blow up and then nobody gives a shit unless you're one of the rare people that kind of you know fall through the cracks you know so well let's talk about that fight then because you've said yourself that army and freshman really never raised above being the opening act well it's not totally true we did headline over here one or two times and it was great not huge shows but we were putting I'm going to be honest with you, anywhere from 100 to maybe maybe 300 people at our peak here yeah. in a headliner, which is sensational. Now it's huge. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. If we could do that now, I'd be like, we won the lottery. <laughs> but I know we can. She's an angel in the hallway in the stands and at the mall. I see her everywhere I go. She don't see me at all. But I never hit send I'd ask for some advice But I don't have any friends I hit the wall all night With the 37 names Tonight it's Captain Elvis Lately he's been on his game I'm taking up karate And I'm saving for a tad Cause anyone who's anyone Those girls are into that When you fought, it's underground though, you know. When you were at your peak, and you never made that next step, yeah. Was there? Are you a jealous person? Were you jealous of other bands that you saw absolutely. around you at the time? Absolutely. I'm, I'm being brutally yeah, honest yeah. with you, but man, oh god. And how did you deal with that jealousy? I mean, it was just like we would see bands that we know we could hang with, and when I say hang with, I mean we're putting on just as good a show, and we're writing better songs. Yeah. But they got the record dealer, they got the big manager, they got the agent, and I won't name names, but I know, I'm I'm thinking of my genre, because Mm -hmm. we are very much put in the pop punk world. I don't necessarily classify ourselves as that, but I know that that's where people think about us, that's where people, we are the opening band for the Good Charlottes, and the Simple Plans, and the Blinks, and the Bowling for Soups. We were the, you know, the opening band for those. Um, And none of the ones that I just said, because I actually like all the bands that I just mentioned to you, but there was another level right underneath them of bands that were getting signed and having a bit of success where I'm like, I know I'm a better front man than that guy, 
I know my guys are writing better songs, and I know we treat our fans better, and that always bummed me out. Yeah. You know, I saw a lot of incidents. I can think off the top of my head. There's one. There's a band that we would play with that got big, and we didn't, but we would play with them a lot, and uh, they got super big in the States, um, and I remember seeing them on Warp Tour once, and the drummer blew off a kid who wanted an autograph. There was nobody around. It wasn't a big deal. It was backstage. And I was so horrified that this guy, I'm like, dude, we were playing empty shitholes with you a yeah. year ago. And now you're literally too good to sign a little kid. And he was a young kid. A little kid's t-shirt because you're walking hand in hand with your half-hot model girlfriend. <laughs> and it was just like, it just was like, that stuff like that would get to me. And, and some of that's jealousy, but some of it's, I know, in some cases, I'm even a better person than that guy. Yeah. And had I got the fame... I know I would have treated it better and I would have treated people better. So I'm like, I'm sleeping in the back of a van and that guy's in a tour bus and he's treating people like shit and he's hooking up with the models, blah, 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 you know, fill it all in. There's jealousy that comes with that naturally, you know, but at a certain point you accept that's not going to be for us. You know, one day you wake up and you're like, we're just not going to be at that level. Well, let's talk about that moment because something that I can kind of relate with you is that I've been I've been trying to make radio my main job is making radio documentaries gotcha and there's been you a got point, a good voice for it oh well thank you well no I'm a producer I'm behind the uh, okay. behind the mic but never mind you sound like shit <laughs> so um, but I've been doing this for about six years seven years not the podcast but making documentaries but I'm getting to a point now about so I know I'm not going to get where I want to get okay and it's been a hard transition to kind of understand and take that in I'm guessing for you, for someone who has put their heart and soul into trying to make your band everything that you want it to be, and yeah. then all of a sudden have to stop and look back and go, this isn't going to be... Yeah. How, how, how does that feel? How can you kind of explain that feeling for you anyone know, who hasn't... It took a long time to realize that. It wasn't like a, a eureka moment, you know? I yeah. mean, it was as things were slowing down in uh, 09, 010, 011, we would still occasionally get stuff. We popped over here and played Sonosphere. It was great. Um, we went over to China. So everyone, the problem was we'd always get that carrot. Just when it looked like everything was done, their little carrot dangle, you know? So we would occasionally get stuff here and there, but it just kept getting slower. Less calls, less tours, less emails. And then one day you kind of wake up and nobody cares. I mean, don't get me wrong. You still got some fans out there that give a crap. But you can tell that everything's changed and it's not going to be like it is. So I fought tooth and nail, man. I mean, I fought tooth and nail, you know. Um, I remember distinctly um, a conversation with my uh, maybe my now wife. She's probably my girlfriend at the time. And uh, she said something. We were in an argument or something. Yeah. I remember exactly. We were in the backyard, and she said something so mean. Um, and uh, so hopefully she doesn't hear this. Uh, but she, <laughs> she uh, said, you and I both know that that band's over. You just don't want to admit it. We we're talking about arguing about money. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it cut me to the core, man. I mean, it was literally almost like I wanted to, you know what I mean? It was yeah, yeah. so hard because... First off, she's a very brutal woman. Love her to death, and that's what I like about her. But she's cold, you know what I mean? And I know she's saying it to be mean, but I knew there was some truth in it. And what she was saying is, hey, you're never going to make a career doing that. And it was just like, oh. And, of course, me, I'm like, I'll prove you wrong, you know what I mean? Um, But uh, it was very hard. I mean, there was nights where I would just lay in bed and just be like, you know, I gave everything to this, everything, and I have nothing, but I have nothing 
from a financial standpoint, yeah. not from everything that I got to do. I've been to Japan. I've been to Europe. I've been to the UK 15 times. Um, there's people that have lyrics that I wrote tattooed on their bodies. I've had the ability to play festivals in front of thousands of people. And I know I'm small time. But I still got to do everything I just told you, and those were, that was my dream. Like if you went to that kid in high school and said, yo, what's your dream? I want to play festivals, and I want to have people love my li-. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it didn't happen all the way, but I can't complain because it happened. And yeah. that's the, the – I mean that's a summary of my life. I mean like when it's all said and done, I want somebody to be like, yo, that dude never made any money, but – God, he had the richest life ever from what I started with. You know what I mean? I didn't have the rich uncle or the rich dad who gave me a million dollars to start a band or um, to make a movie or to everything I did. I did because, damn it, I want to do this and I'm going to work hard. And things will happen if you work hard. And I still tell that to people. You talk about that kid that we were talking about, the imaginary kid. Work hard. The work is different now. The work is more online. The work is more visual. The work is more video. But things still will happen they'll still happen but you got to work hard you got to work harder than the next guy but the ultimately you have to do it because you love it same thing with you're talking about doing radio documentaries and whatnot you got to love it man Hmm. because if you don't love it i mean come on what are the chances you're going to have the next mega podcast where you're rich because people are giving you money exactly it's a slim chance but you still make them because you love it. Well, that's you why. Know? That's and why then people like me find it, and I love it too. Yeah. And it's a small base, but it's a loyal base. I mean, I feel that's what you have. You know? Yeah, I mean, this is why I started the podcast. Really, was for my own mental health. If I'm completely honest, mm. because work wasn't coming, and I felt like my creatively, I wasn't being able to do anything. And yeah. punk has always been something that I loved. Uh, in my past past life, I used to work for Radio One Punk Rock Show, and okay. that that point was probably where I loved my job. I generally mm. loved it. I loved everything about punk. And but we're probably talking about that glory period where I was playing a lot, and exactly. you were doing that. And for guys like you and I, life was still good. Then exactly. all of a sudden, things got really upside down. Well, my, I mean, the, the show got cancelled, so it's like, oh fuck, what am I going to do now? And it's trying to find your next passion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, I was I was kind of interested. To, to know for yourself and also for me to see how you've how you've dealt with it but it sounds like you've dealt with it in a positive way so you've put your energy into writing movies yeah. and also your boxing we're going to get into the movies in two seconds but yeah I found I had to find something else so you yeah. make a really good point just like you've ventured into podcasting I knew I need a break from this music thing mentally because I mean I just wanted it so bad man yeah, I yeah. wanted it so bad all I wanted to do is pay the bills doing music so, um, you know, I found two things from a physical standpoint. I was starting to fall apart physically. So that's where I found boxing and that became such a passion and a wonderful outlet and distraction. And it was probably good for me to go in a gym and just hit a bag to forget about all this stuff, you know, like that my life was in flux because a lot of people my age, they were starting families and here they are in yeah. their early 30s and life's going good. And they got their footing and I'm like, I'm as broke as I was when I was 17. <laughs> but I could also be proud of the things that I accomplished with the band. And then, um, you know, to venture into the film, uh, Aaron and I, uh, our guitar player, um, I had an idea for a film, and I like writing with him, and I asked him to come on board, and I said, I got an idea for a raunchy, silly guy comedy. I'm going to write it. You want to write it with me? I was like, no one may ever read this as long as we live, but let's just try it. And we did, and we brought some people in to give us some advice, and we wrote a screenplay. Never had written a screenplay before. Now, I do a lot of freelance journalism, so I'm not a stranger to writing, but I'm not a screenplay in the true sense of a real screenplay. We wrote the thing. We thought it was ridiculous and stupid and funny and silly, and we said, you know what? We're not going to do what we did in the music business, much like you with podcasting. We're not going to wait 
for some company or some radio station or for some label to give us permission to make this film. Yep. We're just going to do it. We are going to find money somehow. We don't care how cheap it is, but God damn it, we're going to make a movie. And that became the next big adventure in my life when the band slowed down because we did it. We actually found a little bit of money and we made a very small indie film and I got to cast some of my wrestling heroes in it and I got to make this ridiculous, silly movie that nobody thought was possible against all odds and I didn't have to get anybody's freaking permission to do it. It was just a matter of finding the money, getting a good people around and right now we got a movie that exists. You can go to iTunes UK and watch it. Did it go to theaters? No. But was I sitting there at a premiere in Los Angeles in a packed theater and people are just laughing away at this ridiculous silly movie um, you know that was made on a shoestring budget that took us three years to finish and uh, yeah and that goes back to just my life like okay here I am at a Hollywood premiere and tonight I don't know if I can afford Taco Bell (laughs) but darn it you know I did it you know and and that's kind of grabbing the bull by the horns and saying hey we're gonna do this no matter what like don't let people stop you it may not be exactly what you want i didn't have a million dollars to make a movie i didn't have half a million dollars to make a movie but i had enough to find a way to do it you know and now i can say that we're in film we've written our second screenplay where we've begun to look for money for that and god willing we can make another movie with a a little bit of a higher budget you know so can we just name the movie yeah i don't don't have my notes with you got it the movie is called the bet the b-e-t the bet it just came out on uh, itunes uk last week um it's got a bunch of old professional wrestlers in it yes my favorite the wrestler. final film yeah. appearance of Roddy Roddy Piper. So can I ask yeah. your favorite Roddy Piper story? You've oh heard? man, you, you open up a can of worms, but <laughs> I got a good one for you. Let me. I got to hit the drink first. All right, here we go. And, and this will be a good one to kind of maybe even wrap everything up here. Is um, so I'm a huge Roddy Roddy Piper fan. Clearly, you are. I think he was very talented as a as a wrestler on the mic as a yeah. heel as an actor and they live so when we made this movie I'm like gotta get Roddy Piper in it because he does small movies so it was realistic I didn't think it was a, a big stretch you yeah. know um, so I sent him a letter I was a train um, I sent him an email just found an email on his website info at roddypiper.com lo and behold within the same day I got an email back from Roddy Piper saying Chris awesome love your band I'm sure it was bullshit he probably had no idea but I made it sound good you yeah. know hey man you know out there working hard just like you or, you know workhorse um, you know I'd love to hear more about the movie maybe we you know can talk about it sometime done uh, so I wrote him back and said Roddy I'd love to talk to you anytime about it here's my phone number kid you not two days later I get a call from Hot Rod Roddy Piper as nice as you can imagine as sweet as you can imagine I'm losing my freaking mind it's freaking Piper um, I tell him all about the film. He said, well, listen, I'm going to be in L.A. in two weeks or something, a month. Maybe we'll go to lunch. You can tell me all about it. So we're casting for the film uh, a month later, and I am going to meet Roddy Piper and pitch him and beg him to be in my movie that has no money. Yeah. You know, And right there, we met on Santa Monica Boulevard. I'll never forget it. He was at a juice shop, walked in. Chris, Roddy Piper, shakes my <laughs> hand. Um, made me drink this crazy juice drink that he drank. We went across the street and we got pizza. Sat there and just ordered pizza and Cokes. Um, and I just talked and talked and talked. And he listened. He's talking to me. We hit it off, blah, blah, blah. I gave him the script. He said, listen, let me, uh, I'll take a look at this, talk to my manager, see if it's something. I basically said I'm interested. Not like I'm in, but I'm interested. Um, and uh, he ultimately agreed to do the film. Okay. 
sad story here. He contacts us a couple days before we shoot, and it also his involvement led to us getting Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, he says, Chris, I got some bad news. I'm like, what, what, what? Uh, I got a call from WWE. They want me to do some stuff on Monday Night Raw next week. I can't turn it down. That's my bread and butter. I'm not able to do the movie. I'm devastated. Heart ripped out because he was going to be like a heavy character in it, you know? And I was so excited to have him. It brought some credibility to the film. And then I thought I was going to lose Diamond Dallas Page. To Roddy's credit, he called Diamond Dallas Page. He said, don't leave the movie. This is a great guy, blah, 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 blah. Well, we're filming the movie. There's only like a 14-day shoot or 10-day shoot, something. And I get a call from Piper. And he said, hey, man, just want to see how the film was going. I said, Roddy, it's going great. I said, are you back in L.A.? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be back there like tomorrow. I was like, will you come be in the movie? He's like, well, what are you talking about, man? I'm like, I'll write a part. Five seconds. Come in. Say one word. I got to have you in this. You help make this happen, you know? And he said, you know what? I'll do it. Next day, I drive to L.A. I pick up Roddy Piper. Comes in my car. It's me and Piper in a car. And we are driving from Hollywood all the way to my house in Ventura an hour. Liam, we are talking. We are bonding we are laughing he is so kind and so sweet i had such a nice what i thought was a real nice connection with him the scene we were shooting was at my house he comes to my house he's hanging out in my guest room you know we're laughing people are tripping the pipers there he comes shoots a 10 second scene he's amazing in it he just totally nails it just like he promised then it was time to drive him back to hollywood here's where it gets cool it's friday night ventura to la traffic as bad as it gets at 5 o'clock. Worst possible time ever. We are driving. Uh, we're stuck in traffic for two and a half hours. It should be an hour drive. We just bond, man. We just talk. We're laughing. We're crying. He's telling me stories about his family. I'm talking about my family. We're talking about our dreams. We came up with ideas of stuff to do together. It was bizarre. It yeah. was just like you are literally bonding with a hero. A hero and he's treating you like an equal. So, um, you know, I drop him off, gives me a hug, says, man, you're one of the good guys. You know, we're going to do some stuff together. Over the course of the next couple months, we had kept in touch. We would text. We would call occasionally. And uh, he passed away yeah. suddenly, unexpectedly. And it was a real shock to me because we had become friends. Close friends, no. Friends, yes. And it was... Uh, you know, he, I became friends with his daughter. I invited her to the premiere, and it was such a special moment when he came on screen because that was the last time she was going to see him in a film. You know, she was emotional. I was emotional. He's only in the movie for a few seconds, but it was remarkable. And he was an underdog. He was a guy that supported guys like me, guys like you. He gave a shit. He wasn't too cool for school. He wasn't too famous. He was a real, real special person, and I felt like I was meant to meet him and he was meant to somehow be a part of that film so you know it all comes around as a little kid watching him and you know thinking he's this evil wrestling villain and then to become friends with him those are the type of experiences that to go back to the original theme money can't buy you can't buy that you can't buy becoming friends with somebody like that in such a fun underdog way it's not like somebody introduced him hey it's Chris he's from a big band you guys should be friends <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was yeah. just honest to people that really rooted for the underdog you know so well Chris as yeah. you said I think we should finish on that it's been awesome. an absolute pleasure man. yeah man this has been great thank you so much man best questions in the world and, and I wish you luck with everything you're doing Liam and I can't wait to tell people about this show when it comes out Archaeologists came, so I just changed my name I had to still to go, they were moving too slow 
episode 14 of Punks and Pubs. Thank you to Chris for taking the time to talk to me. And also go over and give the guys some love via Twitter at Army of Freshmen. Also, don't forget to go and check out Chris's movie. It's on iTunes and it's called The Bet. Uh, that's it for me this week and also for this month. Punks and Pubs will be taking a very short break in June as I'm off to the Middle East with uh, work and pleasure. And the Wi-Fi connection is not the best. But I will be back on July the 1st with episode 15 and I will be talking to a guy from one of my favourite bands right now. The podcast will stay active on all social media at Punks and Pubs, so why not go back and listen to past shows you might have skipped for whatever reason? So go back and listen to episode one with Pat Fetic of Anti Flag. Why not go find out the one with Frank Turner or hunt out the one where I spoke to Joe from Idols? Don't forget to show the love and go rate and review, and for fuck's sake, tell your mates about the podcast. Closing out the show this week is Scottish rockabilly band called Media Whores with this track from their current album, Dangerous Minds. This is You Can't Say Whore on the radio. As always, if you're going to a punk show, in particular if you're going to Slam Dunk, if you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up. Until July the 1st, bye bye. You can't say whore on the radio, but you can bust it yourself in 9 to 5. You can't say whore on the radio, promoting bottles to get swimming, you're a hypocrite lie. You can't say whore on the radio, if I don't recognize your style and turn on my dial. You can't say whore on the radio, I don't appreciate your sound, I'm going underground.